topics. We're gonna shoot on the aftermath of the pandemic. We're gonna talk NFL offseason. And we're gonna tell you how we're gonna turn the Mets from a pretender to a contender. In the words of the great Tom Brady, start to begin to return to normalcy, many sports teams across the country are gearing up for the fans' return to the stands. The coronavirus epidemic is beginning to wind down in many areas across the country to the point where live sports are considered to be brought back. Many fans, including myself and the Foz, are desperate to get back to the stands and see some live sports. But I apologize for being the bearer of bad news here. We got a long way to go. The return to ballparks is bringing up more questions than they are answers. Firstly, what's going to be regulated? The amount of seats or people that could be in the stands at one time in such a densely populated area like a stadium? What type of solutions will come to mind in order to accommodate everybody? Maybe isolated seating? Kind of like a penalty box for the players in hockey, only for people. Sitting behind glass, it's kind of weird. And that's not even considering, what about patrons being forced to wear a mask for an extended period of time to attend the event? I know I'm not going to like that. It's hard enough doing it walking down the street, let alone in a 70,000 person capacity stadium. Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. The whole point is to create a hospitable experience. And we understand that health is at the forefront, but I, I can have to imagine that people are not going to want to do it. I'd rather just watch the game at your house. Right, that's what I'm thinking. At that point, if, if, let's say, for example, me and you went to a game, right, and they isolated the seats directly between us, right? Because I can only imagine if you, if you go to the games with somebody, even sitting next to your friends, your family members, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, you know, corporations, whoever, own, the owners of the team, the teams themselves, might consider that a risk. Not to mention, how are we going to enforce social distancing? You can do it in a small business or shop, like everywhere, but this is a stadium. These are 50,000 plus. Hell, a thousand plus people is already difficult in that sense. How are we going to ensure that we can have social distancing maintained when you're waiting on lines or even just in general at the bathroom or anything? It's not really, right. it doesn't really make sense. So how are we going to react to this new normal and make sure that that a six-foot distance is maintained at all times. I just don't see how that's possible. Bathroom and concession, please. I mean, listen, we've been to plenty of Yankee and Met games to the point where we know the bathrooms are atrocious. It's <laughs> awful. And the lines for concessions are, you know, we're talking about lines and wait times. Awful. Here's another one. What if I don't want to have my concessions handled by somebody else? I'm comfortable, but I can promise you, promise you, that there are not going to be people that are comfortable having their food served to them. And I don't think that it's going to be a smooth transition no matter what we do. Right. I, I mean, realistically, if you think about it, for the most part, your food's always going to be handled by someone, whether you go to the grocery, uh, the grocery store, whether you get delivery. But on a mass scale like this, it's a little different, um, especially with the exchange of money. You know, 
You whoever whoever's working the registers, they're touching people's cards all the time. They are, you know, exchanging money, and we all know American money or just money in general. It's exchanged so often; it's the dirtiest fucking thing by far. It's awful. We all—I don't want to get into grossness, but we all know where money is. It's the oldest thing that's ever been traded besides gold. Right. It's not. It's not clean, at, at all. I, I don't get it, and that's not even considering eating the food. How is someone supposed to eat? The whole point is to not be breathing around other people. How are people supposed to eat these concessions, let alone waiting for them, how they're cared for in such a massive environment? These are questions that need to be answered. Right. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think we're even at the point where we can consider these options, or do you think it's realistic that we need to potentially go an NFL season without stands? I think people are thinking way too far ahead already. We're talking about getting fans in the stands when half of the labor negotiations to get people to even play have not been decided yet. And truthfully, as much as, like I said in the intro, I'm in a rush to get there. I want to be there so badly. These questions are not being answered not nearly quick enough, and they're incredibly complex. We're worried about how many games are being played if they're going to be games to play. And then on top of that, we have health risks. Like, no one's thinking about this in a clear, concise manner. Yeah, and there's not more of a, a contact sport than football, you know? And, to- and listen, think about this for a second, guys. Really think about it. Is all of this going to be profitable? If everyone forgets that this is a business, if, if there's there not enough profit in there for the owners to reopen, which they're not because in the MLB, the owners keep on trying to reduce the amount of games being played this year. So I think there's a question of profit. So on top of all everything else, will this make money enough for it to even be worth it? I don't think so. You know, I wanna I wanna say this. I don't think we, not only as a podcast, but overall, just as sports fans, really can be too concerned with the MLB because I think the MLB is a wash at the end of the day. I think we both know that the MLB is a, a giant, unmitigated mess right now. You know. Um, between cheating scandals and everything else that's going on. It's it's just a mess. I think this applies best to football because the NBA already announced that they're not going to have fans. The NHL already announced that they're not going to have fans. Football's sort of in this flux where everything occurred in their offseason. It's working out best for them, and they're in the best position. Not to mention the NFL is innovative. They really, they really do find ways, and we give them a lot of crap. Yeah. Quite deservingly so. <laughs> we definitely give them a lot we, of shit. Deservingly so, but I will say this. They executed the draft the absolute best way possible for them. Right. They have executed everything thus far to the best of their ability, and they don't stop. They find a way to put on the product still despite the challenges ahead. So I've got to give the NFL credit. But having said all that, no matter what happens, this is not an MLB stadium thing. It's not a football stadium thing. Every single arena, we'll call it that arena, We'll have to find some sort of guidelines, and I have a couple laid out here that I think just make sense. For example, and again, I, I can't believe this wasn't a thing already in society, but from now on, we have to have multiple, multiple cleaning stations all over the place. I It really boggles my mind that we didn't have that before, but... That's very true. That, that needs to happen. Yeah, when you, when you put that down in the notes, I, I thought about it. I was like... As somebody that absolutely skeeves people, like, if I shake somebody's hand, no matter who it is, if I shake your hand, I go wash my fucking hands. Yeah, it's Forever. just... Forever. 
and it's it's commonplace now though. It's not even like every local store, most of them big supermarkets, wherever there's massive amounts of people, except for stadiums. And listen, maybe they have some. I'm not saying they don't have them. Mm-hmm. We need more of them. There's too many people at once that are just dirty. Yeah. And again, we're going back to the concession personnel. I came up with a solution, which to me is basically just reduces the amount of hands during an exchange. Because that's what it's about, automation. It's not about it's not only about profit, which we all know the owners want. Now it's a matter of safety. You're gonna see in the future that concessions are going to be handled less and less by people. And although that'll cost people jobs, it's for the best of people in order to get back to what they want. Right. We can have automated beverage machines. Right. There's really no reason why a person should be giving a beverage out at right. all. It could all be done automatically through a vending machine. I wanna make two points here. Number one, it's it's going to first start off as something that will be for the betterment of keeping the virus at bay, but then it's going to evolve into, you know, Stop oh, this, this is good. Yay, money, 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 money. Like Mr. Krabs, you know? That's what it's about, guys. Listen, no matter what, the good of the people, it's not about the good of the people. Right. It's about, is it good for people and can it profit? Right. Secondly, this, I know you brought up the question already, and I, I think we kind of, maybe didn't answer it yet, um, will implementing this actually make a profit? I think in the short term, it is gonna cost a lot, but ultimately, if you do it properly and you show, let's say let's say you're the Jets or the Giants, for example, you show the state of New Jersey, you show basically the country, the NFL, you show that you're, you've taken enough precautionary measure and New Jersey could be in, you know, in a certain phase of reopening, I think ultimately you're going to have enough, you're going to be able to fill your stadium with enough people where you can make that profit, where it's going to be worth it, where you can drive in enough revenue and you can sort of set the groundwork for everybody else. I'm going to ask you a question that I I personally did not know the answer to. Are most stadiums privately owned by their owners or by their local governments? The reason why I ask is this. Mm-hmm. I believe that the Packers are owned collectively by Green Bay. Okay. And I'm assuming, and again, I could be wrong, but I'm assuming that Lambeau Field is also owned by the city as well. Mm-hmm. So if it's now a local government thing who's now trying to protect its people instead of privatized revenue, you might see that being one of the first few places that tries something like that, where a government has control of what happens and they have to abide by certain regulations, certain amount of hand sanitizers, more bathroom stations, more cleaning areas. Um, that's not necessarily the truth, but that's what I think would make the most sense. Right. That's fair. I mean, it's a great question, but it depends on every single stadium. I do believe for the most part, for example, the Yankees and the Mets, the owners own the stadium. I know that they finance it with taxpayer money, so that could be, that could be influential, but is, but they're essentially privately owned for the most part. The Steinbrenner family owns Literally everything when it comes to the Yankees, the Correct. logo, everything. Correct. As well as the Wilpons, actually, even though their net worth is, is very low, they still own 65% of SNY. They apparently own the company that runs, the operating company that runs City Field. And obviously, they own the majority of the Mets as well, along with Salt Cats. Let me ask you a question. Shoot. So the MLB teams. And I want, I'm going to explain the context in a second, but the MLB teams are as much a virtual reality technology company as they are a sports one. You own most of the networks, which then broadcast this stuff to people. Right. Who's to say that, and this is crazy radical, okay. but this is the future. 
All right. Who's to say that they're not going to have VR packages, right? Right. Cameras in the stands that are so strong that it simulates being there in real time, but you're not. And then they sell packages kind of like the MLB cam where you would have first base view, catcher view, third base view. Who's to say that they can't make isolated packages that will mirror what's happening on the field in real time and do that? It's crazy, but who's to say that we can't do that? Who would have thought that Facebook was around 20 years ago? I did it, and look what it controls. Right. Everything. The possibilities really exist. I think I think it's a very interesting idea. I think it's something that will be implemented a lot sooner than you think. I know we discussed it a couple days ago. You said 30 years, and I said four to five years. I can realistically see it. Um, I can realistically see it coming to your home, to my home, to everybody's home this decade. If you see already, PlayStation, Sony, and Microsoft, the Xbox, they already have partnerships with MLB TV. You know, we've watched MLB games on my PlayStation before, and and, and things like that. You know, I don't know if you have, but yeah, the, you know, the technological infrastructure is right. there. It's it's literally right there. Maybe they haven't perfected it yet, but right. it's. It's coming. There's a PlayStation VR. I know. You know? So if you if you combine that with the fact that they have the rights to stream MLB games already and you can pay for that, who's to say you can't implement that sooner than later? Especially with the coronavirus pandemic. You know? Is it profitable enough is the question. Is it profitable enough for teams? That's the thing. You know? I don't... I'd imagine that would be a super expensive... Like, I don't, there's no way that you can make it cheap enough where every single person can use it yet. That's why I'm saying that it'll take longer for it to be a mainstream yeah. idea, but the technology is almost right. there. Well, yes. I'll tell you why it's profitable. Because when you purchase MLB TV, uh, whatever, wherever you are for the most part, Yankee games and Met games are blacked out. For example, we're, we're in New York, <sighs> so they're blacked out. Um, so you, if you want to watch them and you want to go to the games... You have to go to the games. You can't use virtual reality. But if you want to see the Padres, for example, you want to put, you know, see a Dodger game wherever else, you can use that VR technology. And mm, I like that. Yeah, that makes and, sense. and VR, the PSVR is three fifty with a bundle with some stupid golf game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I certainly don't want to talk about golf games, but I think the VR goggle technology needs to get better still and cheaper to make. So I think that down the line, we're not going to have that for a while. So for the most part, we're, we're going to have people in the stands prior to the technology being there. Listen, you, you and me are both conspiracy theorists, and you know we love to fucking talk radical ideas and whatnot, but let's, let's call a spade a spade here. VR probably causes cancer for a long-term period. Listen, so do cell phones. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, here we are. You know, any VR technology probably causes it, so is. Is the long-term risk worth it? I know I'm obviously not a scientist, nor am I credible, but, I mean, you don't want to be strapping that shit to your face for a long-term period for three hours, you know? Not at all. I think we're going to see... Te we're going to see technology brought into our sports. It's a, it's a virtual guarantee, and it's going to start slowly. We're going to have people coming into the stands first. Then, to address the ideas that I brought to the table, I think each ballpark will start with developing apps for themselves. Right having their food delivered to the patrons in their seats at the ballpark. Types of solutions like that. That, that stuff will slowly but surely transition into becoming the new normal that I hate so much about having your food delivered to you at the stadium, which then turns to more technology. Right. Well, you already do. If you sit in the lower levels, for example, at 
Yankee Stadium, City Field, they have that option where you have somebody come to you. They, they give you a menu. They say, here, what do you want? You use like a, a technology program that they have to, to order it, or they'll input it in their system. It goes directly to the kitchen, and they bring it to you. Rich people stuff, man. Yeah, so it's, it's not as radical maybe as you think. It just eliminates jobs. It, cut, it cuts costs. But that's automation. That's what, right. And the MLB is all about profit. Well, right. Not just the MLB, but in general, look at the advertisers. Think about, they're talking about lost money. Lost money left and right with the MLB. So if we're talking all about this lost revenue, even if they bring people back, they're going to try and compensate for less people in the stands. So right. honestly, is the experience going to be worth it? I don't think so, and I'm going to tell you why. Shoot. First off, in order to make up the profits, concessions will probably be through the roof. That $20 beer turned into a $30 beer. That fries from 6 bucks went to 13 bucks. They're going to try and make money, and you're going to see more ads. Right. The ballpark app I'm talking to you about that everyone's going to have to do to get food, that's going to have an ad. All this, the ads on the field, there's not that very many of them in the, in the MLB and NFL in comparison to Europe if you go to a soccer game. Right. We're going to see a lot more ads. The owners are going to try everything they do to recoup lost revenue. And, you know, with all of that being said, and I said a lot, I get it, but these are thoughts we have to talk about. I'm sorry to say that the future of mass gatherings, it's bleak. And I don't want to be a part of it if anything that I brought to the table is the new normal. Well, one thing I do want to mention before we get to the next segment that we're doing I know you said that your potential ideas are radical, but I'm not going to lie. I don't think they're as radical as you think because it's a realistic option. I think every option that you provided is potentially profitable for everyone, and ultimately it keeps people safe. You know, we don't know when we're going to have a cure for this virus. We don't know the short-term, long-term outlooks for people. And the virus, I, I, you know, I don't want to be bleak about it, but who knows when it's going to go away at the end of the day. Will it go away? Will it go away? Listen, there's, I know that we have the safety measures there, and I know it's possible, but it's going to be about its execution. And if I know profitability is there, it has to be there. But if it's exclusively about profit, where they ask you to put a quarter every time you want some Purell on your hands at the stadium, there's going to be a real problem. I think at this point, it should be a common courtesy. Absolutely. When you're invited to a stadium. Absolutely. Shit's dirty. People are fucking gross. People are dirty. Yes, all of you listeners are gross. I'm gross too. People are gross. gross. Yeah, people are gross the other day. We pick our asses, we pick our noses, we don't wash our hands. You know, I'm not saying I do that, you know... What he's trying to say is that naturally we all have some quirks and dirtiness to us. Right. And no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to avoid it. But I'm going to tell you this. I am not going to wear rubber gloves to my games. I'm just not going to do it. Now, I have to uh, bring up what you said before. Speaking of the new normal. Oh, God, I hate that phrase. But you used it twice. That's because it's being programmed into us. Fair enough. The new normal is apparently cheating in baseball. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it's always been, I guess, a prevalent topic with the steroid era and whatnot. You know, you've had some high-profile players, MVPs. Now you have the Astros, right, with their cheating scandal over three seasons. You've got the Red Sox apparently cheating with the Apple Watches. Obviously, that was you know dismissed for the most part, but they were still docked a second-round pick, 
I think Manfred swept that under the rug. No, they were docked a second rounder because of the Alex Cora thing. It had nothing to do with the Apple Watches. Oh, okay. That was actually swept under the rug. Yeah. Um, so there was real no evidence, or, or I don't even say no evidence. They just pretty much didn't disclose. Listen, I don't know. I don't know what the evidence is. Nobody really does. And now, well, I know you're gonna get to it. So let me. I just got a four a.m. text about it. Yeah, of course you did. Because how could you not? The cat's out of the bag, everybody. Now the Yankees are being investigated, and I'm not gonna go into the whole details. But there's this disclosed letter out there somewhere in the MLB office where someone judge somewhere is ordering this to be opened and looked at. So. The long and short of it is that the Yankees are now being investigated to some degree about alleged cheating. And look, I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm biased. And your first reaction is, yeah, fuck the Yankees. But no, one, Red Sox got caught being bad too. Mm-hmm. Not going to pretend like it's not. But two, I look at it this way. The very best, the very best that our sport has to offer. Red Sox were the 2018 champions. The Astros were the 2017 champions. Lost in 2019. And the Yankees are a perennial contender. The best at the sport are finding creative ways to get an advantage over the competition. You know what that's called? That's called capitalism. It really is. It's not ethical, but at the same time, how many times have we seen companies not do the ethical thing to make more money or get a profit? That's just business. Is it getting out of hand? Undoubtedly. But until the MLB gives some real consequence for what's happening, it's going to continue. And at this point... Honestly, I think every team probably needs to be investigated, whether you're innocent or not. It's widespread. It's like a virus. Ha ha ha. <laughs> that's that's actually a good point. I do like the little pun at the end with the booth. Um, <laughs> 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 no, but but honestly, and even as a Yankee fan, I mean, look, I don't I don't want to jump down the Yankees' throats, but there were people. I guess unofficial sources coming out and saying Gleyber Torres had a buzzer on his leg, uh, as as early as maybe, what, six months ago? You know, right after the season. So it, it wouldn't... Listen, I'm, I'm not saying that the Yankees did cheat. I'm not saying that, you know... We'll find gu- out. Yeah, I'm not saying they're guilty or not guilty. We'll find out on June 19th, or a little after June 19th. But ultimately, Richard Petty said, if you ain't cheating, he ain't trying. Listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the Yankee fans some shit here, because they've been shitting all over the Astros, and honestly, rightfully so, up until... Well, really, last night. Right. But now, when where are the limitations here? Because baseball has been about cheating. Cheating has been accepted in baseball basically since its, since its existence. Yeah. Stealing signs and communication has been secretive forever. It's just part of the game. It's like X's and O's in football. Right. The problem now is that it's a sport that was made in the late 1800s where now the technology is there. But we can we can decode things so much better, and baseball has not made that adjustment. Maybe because they want to keep it traditional, maybe not. It's baseball not ri- is very far from traditional at this point. It's so ironic how they want to keep certain things traditional, like the attitudes of the players. You can't watch your home runs. You you know the the difference between the DH and the non DH leagues. But then at the same time, you know they want to be sort of modern in a way. It's just, they're very iffy on so many things. They're not consistent. And I think that is, I don't want to say a big part, but it is why they're suffering and and they're no longer the pastime of America. You know what I mean? I agree, but I think it goes even larger than that. Fair. It's, 
the MLB is the worst type of greedy in the sense that they know that if they market their players better, they will make more money. But then they also need to pay those players more money. So the owners are like, well, what's the point of going through all that work? So that's why baseball is dying. And they still, I'm not going to get into politics or any of that, but make no mistake. The people that own baseball teams have owned baseball teams for lots of decades, lots of changes in society. And they have not made those adjustments. And And the fans are the same way. Whether those adjustments are right or wrong are not really relevant, but the people that run the show are not open to change. Yeah. I think when we were taking notes the other day, you brought up a good point. I think it was either you or Melo brought up a good point. Mike Trout is the most heralded, by far the best player in baseball. By far the best player since Barry Bonds. He's the most heralded player in baseball. And the highest paid American athlete. And the highest paid American athlete in terms of annual average value. However, if you ask a common... I don't want to say... If you ask a non-sports fan who Mike Trout is, there's a very good chance they might not know. And it may be done by design. It may not be done by design. But regardless of whether it's done by design or not, that's a shitty thing. Because if I go ask my little sister who's Tom Bra- who Tom Brady is, she's going to know the answer. If I ask my sister who LeBron James is... Right. Exactly. And truth be told, those guys might be, you know, transcendent to Mike Trout at this point. But... No. You're, uh, no. I'm sorry. Mike Trout's being sold short. He is Mickey Mantle-esque. Fine. But I think it's irrelevant to the point. I think the point of the matter is... How can you not market Mike Trout well enough? I mean, he plays in LA. He he's led the MLB or the AL and OPS five times over the last six years. I mean, he he leads baseball in every major major statistical category throughout some point in the year. I mean, I mean, he's he's such a pleasure to watch. And baseball, it's not like baseball's attendance, while it has suffered, it's not like base. I, I want to retract what you said before. I don't think baseball's dying. It's not dying, but it's not willing to adapt. I'm. Let me put it to you this yeah. way: Baseball's most marketable player is being shut down, Bryce Harper. And yes, he is not as good as Mike Trout, maybe not. But the fact that he is the face of baseball, Mike Trout's not, doesn't make any sense. Except, here's the thing: it does. And you know why? Baseball doesn't allow allow personalities on its players. Yeah, and the times that they do, they shut them down. Like Yasiel Puig. Yeah, listen, I don't like guys being douchebags, but you also can't remove personality. We're not trying to watch robots. Right. Like, that's not fun. It's too old school. Don't you mess with my baseball! <laughs> no! You and your scoliosis can go home. I want to go enjoy my baseball game with some life and people and personality. Yeah, and, and thank you, 75-year-old Lorenzo. <laughs> Not so Mr. Massive anymore at 75 and scoliosis. Oh, Jesus Christ. And you were talking about that before, too. You were like, yeah, last week you came in here before we recorded, you were like, I'm going to be a hunchback one time. No, nah, bro, listen, I'm genuinely trying to make sure my posture is better. Put I even sleep out. differently at night now. Interesting. I don't want to have a hunchback. It's a serious thing. Get one of those contour pillows. I have one in my room where you're like, you put it between your legs and then like... It forms and it, like, reforms your spine. It's good, except my back's all fucked up, too. You know who probably uses contour pillows? Who? NFL athletes. Definitely. 100%. 
So, moral of the story, people, buy contour pillows. They're good for your back. <laughs> we'll be back after a fake commercial break. And we're back. I want to say thank you to Contour Pillows for our fake commercial break. (laughs) (laughs) Today's program was brought to you by Contour Pillows. They're good for your back. They're good for your knees. But not good for your head. Not going to lie. I'm putting it right here on my head. And uh, it's all right. It's mediocre. It's, yeah, it's, you know what it is? It's thick. It's not bad. It's actually good for my neck. Now that I think about it, I'm kind of retracting what I said about it not being great for my head. I'm enjoying this. You know what else I enjoy? The NFL! Football's a blast. But as much shit as we want to talk about it... A lot, by the way. A lot. We can't help ourselves. It's an abusive relationship where the sex is great, and then we get tossed to the curb for another dude. Mr. Massive, a lot of shit happens this offseason. Every single goddamn fucking draft prospect had a, 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 such a sad backstory. It was ridiculous. Somebody's parent died. Somebody's sister was sick. Someone had a baby. ESPN really and, uh, wanted people to know that your friends and family were dead or, you know, paralyzed or some sort of, you know, life-changing event that's really sad. But, you know... Good for everybody else. You know what else we learned? That Roger Goodell looks absolutely dashing in a sweater. Mmm, dashing. <laughs> <laughs> Most importantly, Bill O'Brien is a goddamn masochist. He's also a genius because he's managed to keep his job despite all of his stupidity. That's very true. Or Bob McNair is the biggest idiot in the world. I don't know. But anyways, everybody always yaps about the winners and the losers of the offseason like it matters. But unless you're Miss Cleo, no one knows a motherfucking thing. So, we're gonna shoot on our favorite moves and shit on our least favorite moves. In typical people talking about sports for fun stuff. Oh god, they found out our business model. Oh no. We're gonna talk off-season things. But in typical eat my sports fashion, we're gonna have some goddamn fun with it. Get ready for some generic fucking content. Yeah! With flair. Woo! Mr. Massive, favorite moves this offseason? Qual. S. Numero. Uno. Let me just preface this by asking you a question. And this is important. Shoot. Is a move good if it corrects a bad move that it started? Uh, I would say, theoretically, yes. Okay. Be- because always moving forward. You gotta keep moving forward at the end of the day. Alright, so if that's the case, then I'm gonna begin with Numero Uno! Big Dick Nick gets traded from the Jags to the Bears. For those who don't know or don't know nicknames, Nick Foles was the starting quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he signed a tremendous deal after a massive Super Bowl winning season with the Eagles. The Jaguars gave him $88 million over four years with $50 million guaranteed for who started the season before as a backup quarterback. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about why it's a good move that they got rid of him. Gardner Minshew came in, took his job from him, and despite being a big money contract, the Jags were able to get a fourth round pick from the Chicago Bears, who have no idea what the hell they're doing. So, to me, the fact that you're able to get a mid-round pick for a bad contract to a guy that knows that they're not going to start on the team he's on now is astounding to me. That's tremendous value. 
And that's why moving Nick Foles is one of the best trades of the offseason. Okay. And speaking of backup quarterbacks, let's take a moment to acknowledge all of the backup signings that teams made this offseason. I actually think they were all excellent. I think the backup quarterback, although we see in spurts every year that the backup quarterback is essential, it's still not heralded enough as an important key cog for any successful team. Even the Patriots, if you look back in 2008 when Brady got hurt, I mean, listen, they had the team where any quarterback probably could have done the job, but ultimately when Brady goes down, you have a guy like Matt Castle stepping in who didn't start a game in college, who basically had no NFL experience, stepped in, did well, was prepared enough, and went 11-5. Look at Nick Foles. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Gardner Minshew. He's not great, but let's move on. Number one, the Saints signed Jameis Winston for $1.1 million. Unbelievable. That that deal is utterly fantastic, and I think Jameis Winston sees that if he does well in his role, he gets the inside track to the starting role of the Saints. Taysom Hill's not a starting quarterback. I think I think the whole Taysom Hill hoopla is just about the Saints building his credibility as a starting quarterback. Or a trade asset. Exactly, as a trade asset. So that's, that's why they're doing it. So they can pawn him off for a, a good one, you know, or at least a, a late one. I'll put you a two or three, I think. But I see your point there. It makes sense. I think a desperate team can give up a one for Taysom Hill. Yeah, I think that the Saints have done such a good job of building him up as a Swiss Army guy and, and basically, like, muttering behind the scenes, like, yeah, he's a good quarterback. Yeah, you know, he can do many things, like block and play special teams, which makes him a good quarterback. Yeah. Well, I have to say, greedy fake listener, okay, no. But anyways, the Jets also signed Joe Flacco, which I know you thought was a bad move. They signed him for $1.5 million dollars. And if Sam Darnold gets hurt again... I thought it was $5 million. No, $1.5. Yes. Uh, I looked online. Let's, let's. You used the Google machine? I used the Google machine. Okay. And it says here... I just don't see him as a 1. fit. 1.5. I don't see him as a fit for the Jets, but honestly, a, a former Super Bowl winning quarterback at the backup spot... What what do you really have to lose? Yeah. So I guess I guess in that in that regard it makes sense. I just don't like I don't see the fit in terms of how he plays and how the Jets play. He's a composed veteran who has good leadership qualities. Everybody always stood behind him, and that's what Donald needs to to really develop because he's he's still a, a such a baby in the NFL. You know, he's twenty one two. He's something he's twenty two. Like you know, he's going to be twenty three this upcoming season. You know, so... Do you think the Jets let him go if he has a bad season? I know we were talking about this last night, but nah, I don't I don't think so. That, I, it's not a logical move, but... Yeah. Spoiler alert, we're talking about the Jets. They don't always make great decisions. Right. The Cowboys signed Andy Dalton to a one-year $3 million deal. Great deal. Great deal. Andy Dalton is, at the very least, a low-end starter. He's especially a high-end backup. And if they can't figure out a, a deal with Dak Prescott, because Dak Prescott wants $65 million a year, um, <laughs> you have Andy Dalton. And, it, and, and Andy Dalton has shown that with the right core around him, especially with that offensive line and that running game, he can bring it to the playoffs. Listen, I'd argue that Andy Dalton starting would only result at best two less wins than Dak. And yes, I said that. So let's really think about this. The difference in pay versus what you're going to have to pay Dak. Is Dak really, with two wins, that much more worth it when you can reinvest it on the team? 
I don't know the answer to that, but in general, it's a good question to have. So that's yeah. why I love the Andy Dalton move. Right. I also love, and you might not love the money, but Marcus Mariota got signed for two years, $17 million. I know the money's a, a little bit much, but backup quarterbacks make, on average, about four and a half a year. Mariota is definitely a high-end backup. He, he has won a playoff game before. Anytime you've won a playoff game... It's a big deal. You can, you know, you can play for the most part in the NFL. Look at Ryan oh. Tannehill after his first playoff game. He got paid a hundred mil plus. Yeah, actually, I want to retract that statement immediately because Tim Tebow won a playoff game, and we all know how that ended. Listen, uh. he's a once in a lifetime thing, but I think what the idea with Mariota is this: he lost his job to a guy that got a change of scenery, who was good in college and a high value draft pick. Right. Guess who he is now? He's exactly Ryan Tannehill. On top of the fact that the Raiders have basically told the entire world that Derek Carr is not their guy. Right. And if there's anything that backup QBs have shown us, it's that they can beat Bill Belichick. Let's move on. <laughs> Dig. Shots fired. Numero dos. El Senor Messi. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> well, El Senor Messi has the Dallas Cowboys signing Ha Ha Clinton Dix. And no, I'm not going to go look up his real name. He's Ha Ha because it's Sean. Really? Yeah, it's Hashan. That's kind of disappointing. I'm going to go stick with Ha Ha. But the reason why I love this move is this. Here in the New York market, the the papers have been talking about for almost a year that the New York Jets are trying to trade Jamal Adams and that the Cowboys were the most aggressive pursuer of them. Now, signing HaHa Clinton Dix is a much better, cheaper alternative to a team that has higher needs because trading for Jamal Adams, which was almost there would have cost them either a very, very high second-round pick or maybe a late first-round pick. On trading top of a Jamal med- Adams? Trade to acquire Jamal Adams no, for the Cowboys. I think it would have cost them a one and a three. I think even even worse. Right. So look at it this way. Jamal Adams is fantastic. Is he worth that asset value and the contract you're going to give him? No. And if HaHa can give you right. 80% of what Jamal gives you yeah. for a fraction of the cost... And you get to keep your assets in the draft, you absolutely go with that move. And no one's talking about it because everybody loves to highlight the Cowboys' bad decisions, including me. Right. I will be the first to tell you that. But I'm going to tell you this. Jerry Jones, or whoever makes the decisions, because nobody really knows anymore, the signing of Ha Clinton Dix is an excellent, underrated move for the Cowboys' defense. I happen to agree. I definitely think it's a good move. And... Going back to baseball, I think Mookie Betts is going to be a good example of that. You know, do you want to trade for a guy that you're going to have to give a 10-year deal in baseball, a big, massive deal in football, too? And then you have to give away some of your best assets, like Verdugo, Jeter Downs, and, and you know, amongst others. I mean, it's, it's essentially the same thing. It's not a foregone conclusion. Like, the Jets-Jamal Adams beef is getting really big. Mookie never caused trouble with the Red Sox, but he basically told people, hey, I'm going to be a free agent. It's a guarantee. So what do you do? you got to take what you can get. The Jets are losing leverage day by day. Um, Anyways, numero dos por mi, as Senor Fox. With all due respect to Joe Burrow, Chase Young was far and away the best prospect in this past draft. Nice. And quite like Nick Bosa, who I agree was the same in 2019... Young has the ability and moxie to change Washington's entire defense. The Redskins are quietly set up to have one of the top D-lines in football. Arguably, if not the top D-line in football. I know I'm a Niners fan, but 
Seriously, they got Deron, Jonathan Allen. Deron Payne. Deron Payne. They drafted Montez Sweat last year. They still have Ryan Kerrigan. And now you implement Chase Young. Now you put him into that defense. On top of that, you've seen the way the Chiefs, the Niners, and the Ravens have dominated the past year. They used versatile weaponry. You know, guys that can play all over the field do all different things. In the third round, they drafted a super raw but super high upside guy in Antonio Gibson from Memphis. And then my personal favorite, Antonio Golden Gandy from Liberty, who is an athletic freak. He kind of plays like, I want to say, like a, like a Demarius Thomas type. Ooh. Yes. I like that. Two of my ten favorite players from the whole draft. Not to mention, they got Gerald, uh, Joe Burrow starting left tackle from last year and Shadiq Charles in the fourth round. Plus, and I know you brought up the Gronk point. I know you wanted to feature Gronk in this segment. It's too obvious, so I decided not to, but... No, no, no. I'll, I'll, I'm going to bring it up for you because at the end of the day, the Patriots made a great move. They traded Rob Gronkowski, who didn't want to play for them, and they got a fourth-round pick out of it. He was retired. There was, like, ver- there was absolutely no way this guy was playing in the NFL this season. But I think it was the second-best move of that type. The Redskins got a three and a five for Trent Williams. Well, I mean, honestly, they deserve more, but they had they they sacrificed what little leverage they have left just to get rid of him. They had no leverage. That's what I'm saying. Like the fact that you can get a three and a five for a guy that very, very, one more time, very publicly did not want to be with the Redskins anymore due to you know failed cancer treatments a of a tumor on his fucking head. Fucking brain tumor. They. How do you miss? How are you a professional sports organization, a corporation with? Oodles of cash. How do you miss a brain tumor on your most important players? That's pet? the problem because it's not profitable to have him off the field. It's profitable to have him on. Them. He's there. Those Pass. doctors are not for the good of the people. Those doctors are for the good of the team. <laughs> Washington Redskins. Yeah, okay. you're on the hierarchy of douche for another day. Yeah, but absolutely. I but I will say this. I agree with you. I love what the Redskins have done. And think about this for a split second. They're <laughs> building that defense. All of the offensive lines in the NFC East are weaker. Even the Cowboys are not nearly the elite O-line that they were before. They're still great. Right. But they have to terrorize Daniel Jones, which they can. They're going to terrorize Philly, who keeps on trying to improve their O-line, but they still have some work to do. Right. The point is is that their defense is going to allow them to win games within their division. Right. So I like their vision. Hopefully Dan Schneider doesn't fuck it up. Yeah. But, you know, he probably won't. I have to say, A-plus draft for them. Uh, El Senor Massive, numero uno. So, if you couldn't tell from my first pick, I love trades with value or expulsion of near-useless assets. Mm-hmm. Big words, people. Big yeah. words. Well, at but the end of the day, value is, value is everything. It really is. It, it's the driving force behind all decisions. So, let's right. talk about excellent value. It's a virtual lottery win that no one's talking about, and I just don't understand. But yeah. enough hyping it up. The Broncos acquired defensive tackle Jarrell Casey for a seventh-round pick. <laughs> I saw that, and I was like, what the fuck? Jarrell Casey is not a household name to everybody, but he, long story short, was an all-pro defensive tackle for the last three or four years for the Tennessee Five Titans. Five straight Pro Bowls. I'm looking at his pro, re- uh, pro football reference page right now. Five straight Pro Bowls. It's safe to say that he was an elite defender in his position. The Titans got themselves in a bit of a financial trouble because Ryan Tannehill pulled magic out of his hat and Derrick Henry showed the whole world that he's more man than you. So 
let me put it to you this way. After committing 100 plus million to Ryan Tannehill and in the intimidating fear of the man, Derrick Henry, he needs to get paid too. They needed to trade their big money defensive tackle for pennies on the dollar. This man averaged 10 sacks a season and got traded for a 7th round pick. I'm just a little confused with this move because I understand Jarrell Casey's 30, but he certainly has never declined in terms of production. Um... It's a purely a cost-cutting move, and the Broncos said, Hi! Hi! We'll take your great defender! Hi! But nobody wanted to, because if I, I'm looking at his, his pro football reference page now, approximated value, which is basically just a number that sums up um, your overall worth, like war for baseball, he hasn't been below 10 since 2015. Nobody wanted to offer more than a 7. I, you know what it is? It's the contract, and the Broncos have a lot of money. And I love the move for the Broncos, too. They're slowly building a defense, because look at the division they're in. They're in the yeah. NFC West. They have to stop people from throwing the ball. Right. Patrick Mahomes on his own. It's a power move for the Broncos, and I absolutely love it. They did a good job of building on the defensive side through free agency and building on the offensive side through the draft. Absolutely. So that's, that's your best move of the offseason. Now... I hope nobody ever has to feel the agonizing sting of having to watch your team blow a lead in the fourth quarter of a Super Bowl, like I did. I've seen it a couple times. It, yes. it's not it's not great. But this life is all about <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it blows. Honestly, I, I've seen it twice where they, you know, my Niners have have lost the game in the fourth quarter. It fucking sucks ass. But this life is all about resilience and persistence. Ladies and gents, in spite of a tragic Super Bowl collapse, San Francisco, they've made the best moves of the offseason, in my opinion. I think, as, you know, as useless as it is, to me, they've won the offseason. But not just one move. DeForest Buckner's due for a big contract. You trade his big ass for a one, and you draft his immediate replacement in Javon Kinlaw, who fucked up plays in college as much as the Kardashians fuck black guys. All right? The Buckner move also freed enough cap space to allow the Niners to re-sign Eric Armstead and Jimmy Ward, who, if not for the Buckner move, probably would have been on this list wherever he signed. Pretty good guy. Yeah, he got signed for three years, $28.5 million, and it was arguably one of the three not best safeties in football. Not a lot for a DB at all. Yeah, definitely. Injury history has a lot to do with it, but nonetheless. Then, they jumped Green Bay to get Brandon Ayuk, a younger faster, and almost as smooth replacement for Emmanuel Sanders, who is too slow and too 33 years old to catch the perfect deep ball on the perfect play to maybe win San Francisco the Super Bowl. I mean, Emmanuel Sanders shouldn't have been a, the number one guy on your team, though. That's why you guys upgraded it. Exactly. That, in turn, fucked Green Bay and caused them to draft Jordan Love, which created a shit ton of controversy for their NFC Championship opponent. Then, best of all, going back to it, we talked about it just recently, you trade a three in next year's draft and a five in this year's draft for Trent Williams, who's pretty much the best left tackle in football now that Joe Thomas is retired. Call me a homer, say whatever you want, but how often do you see a Super Bowl team lose little to no value the next offseason? The Niners are going to go on a revenge tour. And I'm so fucking excited to watch. So I am going to call you a homer because, well, you are. Yeah. But I can't argue the quality of the moves. It's one thing to support your team in blind stupidity. Yeah. You could be a Jets fan. 
But I'll tell you this much. With the Niners, the moves are calculated. They make sense. And they understand that their window of opportunity to compete for multiple championships is right here, right now. All right, so enough uh, roster baiting about my favorite team. <laughs> <laughs> Worst moves. Senor Massive, numero uno. Numero uno! Ay, senor! Um, it's actually not one specific move because it's everything. When you see something falling apart, it's right in front of your eyes. Hi, Chicago. Your city falls apart to crime, and so do your sports teams. The Chicago Bears, everything you've done makes no sense. As of today, they have nine tight ends on their roster, and a one drafted in a very high second-round pick. It was their first pick in the draft, by the way. They trade for Nick Foles, which I've already told you why it's a great move for the Jaguars, but let me just reiterate very quickly. It's an awful contract. Um, they don't know what to do with him still, and he usually needs advanced weaponry. He's not even guaranteed to be the starter either. You still have Trubisky in the roster. Yeah. Second overall pick, and you're still paying him an exorbitant amount of money. Oh, yeah, and uh, you know Jimmy Graham, the one-year fantasy wonder from, like, 2013? Yeah, he's still around, getting a two-year $16 million deal, almost fully guaranteed. How many How many times has this guy robbed places? I don't even know. Three now. And then lastly, they signed Robert Quinn, a good defender, to play a position that's not natural to him for a five-year $70 million deal. So... I don't know who has it worse, the Texans or the Bears. And speaking of the Texans, Randall Cobb got three years, $27.5 million. He's fucking garbage. Especially when you consider that he's replacing DeAndre Hopkins. He's got 12 touchdowns the past four seasons. What are you doing? Bill O'Brien. Oh, Bill O'Brien, one day you're going to get your own special time. Yes. We can't get into that right now. Because stupid teams do stupid things. Oh, those poor bastards. Yes, we're not even done with the Texans. Speaking but... of stupid teams do stupid things, Las Vegas. Oh, boy. You signed Jason Witten, the old, rotting, decrepit body of Jason Witten. For a one-year, $4 million deal with three and a half of it guaranteed. What contributions are you expecting out of him on the field this season? Hell, I don't know. He's not even the starter. You don't sign a guy for that money out of retirement for locker room leadership. So I don't need... To, I need someone to explain to me what the logic is behind this move. I don't get it. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's no rant. I, I, the I'm thing. genuinely puzzled. Here's, here's my take on it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's obviously for locker, locker room leadership... But you have a tight end that just caught 90 balls this past year. I mean, when, when you look at it that way, I mean, if, if production doesn't provide enough leadership in that regard, especially with Darren Waller and his past drug addiction, a guy that literally came back from hell, if you don't have enough leadership in that guy at the position, I mean, what else are you looking for? But anyways, my number two worst move... Folks, the Vikings made one bad mistake in giving Kirk Cousins a three-year deal. <laughs> they gave him $84 million a year. Uh, not $84 million. $84 million fully guaranteed over three years. Now, they extended the deal by another two years worth $66 million. So you decide to give him even more money fully guaranteed. He's had one game-winning drive in two seasons with the team. He hasn't won a Monday night game. Has he even won a playoff game? No, but I have to say this, and I have to disagree with you for only one reason. Shoot. When was the last time a Minnesota quarterback has done anything remotely close to that? 
Uh, Dante Culpepper? Yeah. Well, and Case how- Keenum. He won a playoff game. Everyone knows that he caught lightning in a bottle. But he still won a playoff game. Look, they got tortured by San Francisco's defense. It was a 27-10 mauling. And San Francisco could have easily dropped 45 on them. You're going to stick it out with a stat compiler who couldn't keep either of his Pro Bowl receivers happy? I mean, I guess one really passionate emotional exchange guarantees you a contract after a game. What are you doing? We'll ask Minnesota fans in two years. You You like that? (laughs) Yeah, because no, they're not. (laughs) El Senor Massive. Worst move. And so we return back to Bill O'Brien. I know I said he's going to get a full episode, and he will, but what the fuck? Okay. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. The, the Houston Texans traded DeAndre Hopkins and a fourth-round pick for David Johnson, a 2020 second-round pick, and a 2021 fourth-round pick. Ugh, I don't even know where to begin with this. You trade, arguably, the best receiver in the NFL today, who happens to be your franchise quarterback's favorite target, for a running back who's done nothing since 2016 Mostly because he can't stay healthy. You then use the assets you acquire to get Brandon Cooks. A guy who's nothing more than name value at this point. Who has a contract that costs more than what DeAndre Hopkins wanted to have. With more on-field concussions than arguably anybody in NFL history. (laughs) What are you doing, Bill O'Brien? You fool! Wait. Wait, Mr. Massive, who do you think has worse CTE? Brandon Cooks or Bill O'Brien? <laughs> I, I go for Antonio Brown. <laughs> oh my goodness. Alright, so... And you know what the worst part about this is? Shoot. Stephon Diggs, a good player, not as good as D-Hop, right. was traded for a lot more. What was it? A 1, a 4, a 5, and a 7, right? A 1, a 2, a 4, and a 7. No, it wasn't a 2. It was a, a 1, a 4, a 5, and a 7, I believe. Either way, yeah. that's a lot more than a, Dave, a David Johnson. You don't have yeah, any knees, fucking, Johnson. That's fucking rough. And oh. it's not like the running backs are bad. Here's the thing. They have Lamar Miller and Duke Johnson. They just don't know how to utilize the running backs. They, they don't know how to utilize them. Their offensive line's really not that good. And ultimately, they're a, they're a passing team. They're just, they, they pass it down their throat. So it makes no sense to me either. I just don't get it. My worst move of the offseason. The Chargers. Oh, <laughs> the Chargers. Uh, San Diego, LA, whatever the fuck you are, you still blow cock. You managed to draft Justin Herbert with a sixth pick in this past draft. You passed on Isaiah Simmons, who is an absolute monster of a chess piece, only to move back up in the first round and draft Kenneth Murray. While Jordan Love was still on the board, you managed to regret your Justin Herbert <laughs> signing before the first round ended. <laughs> you managed to get an inferior quarterback and an inferior linebacker. You know what? You want to know why this franchise is poop on a stick? Because of this shit. Not only does this handicap them this year, but for the foreseeable future. Tyron Taylor is going to be their starter going into the season. Have fun with that. But he doesn't throw interceptions. That's great. He he can't throw down the field more than 20 yards. 
Why? He's got a. He gives Tyron Taylor. Tyron Taylor gives Noodle Arm a new definition. I'm starting to think that they're doing this on purpose. That way, they can relocate to Oklahoma City, so they can get out of the LA deal that they signed to share the stadium with the Rams. Yeah, that's that's what basketballs are, and local Grammy award-winning singer and resident Chargers fan John Mayer uh, thinks they're going to do is relocate to. Uh, Oklahoma City. I mean, Dean Spanos is the absolute worst. You know what's bad when you play home games? Yeah. And you're playing road games at home. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it feels like. Yeah. The yeah. stadium's filled more with your away opponents than your actual fans. Yep. San Diego doesn't know where the hell they are. Yeah. Uh, listen, have fun with a quarterback who had accuracy issues in the Pac-12. You were better off with Checkdown King Phillip Rivers. What are you doing, Los Diego? <laughs> Los Diego. Listen, folks. Free agency is a beautiful opportunity for teams to soak up some of the best talent each year. And whether it be the NFL, the MLB, the NHL, or the NBA, free agency always manages to excite us because it provides opportunities for us to dream about. However, free agency is tricky. Because as many good signings as there are, you get about 10 times as many shitty contracts. And as you can see, it's always fun to rag on people's awful decisions. Like the Texans. Exactly. And with that, we welcome you to your weekly albatross. Mr. Massive, this is your segment. Take it the fuck away. <sighs> the weekly albatross... An albatross is a contract that is designed or deemed immovable and basically awful. And here on this show, we want to highlight to you some of the worst contracts brought around and why these teams make these decisions. So we've done a lot of ragging on the Houston Texans this episode, and it's going to continue because, well, you suck. (laughs) No other way to say it. Since the beginning, the Texans have had no star power. They've had excellent skill players, DeAndre Hopkins, Andre Johnson. Arian Foster. Arian Foster. But we all know that the quarterback is the guy. Right. Between David Carr's miserable existence in the NFL and Matt Schaub's fantasy-only relevance, because, you know, we actually need to win the games we're playing, the Texans were played with shitty quarterback play, so they had a choice to make. How are we going to get our guy? I'll tell you. We're going to go steal somebody else's. You know that guy, Peyton Manning, the Hall of Fame guy? He's pretty good. Let's go get his replacement in order to lead us. No, not Andrew Luck. Brock Osweiler. (laughs) Do you remember Brock Osweiler and his magical Super Bowl run? Uh, Oh, I mean, Peyton Manning had the Super Bowl run, but I certainly remember Brock Osweiler winning some games with Denver. I mean, let's put it this way. I I think a a wooden stick could have led that team to to victory. Well, the Houston Texans decided that a wooden stick deserved four years, $72 million Uh, to lead them into their future. uh, And what did that future hold? It certainly wasn't Houston, because by the next season, his performance was so terrible, he was traded with a second-round pick to the Cleveland Browns for nothing. <laughs> with a second-round pick. Not for a second-round pick. No, like, quarterbacks like, are traded for a second-round pick. It is the prototypical salary dump ever. And yeah. the Browns were like, huh, I'll pay $16 million for a free second-round pick. <laughs> so to trade away the most valuable asset with your team, with an additional future asset, I don't think I need to say anything more. 
what the fuck? I'm surprised they even moved the deal. <laughs> and that's our weekly albatross. Short and sweet. Much like Brock Osweiler's contract with the Texans. Oof. We shall be back with a well-thought-out fake commercial break. Ladies and gentlemen, this fake commercial break is brought to you by our actual first real live audience. Ladies and gentlemen, please introduce to you, Bowie. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Bowie. How's it going, Holmes? It's going just fine. Yeah? Are you happy to be here? I'm happy to be here. Awesome, man. Bowie is my younger brother, and he's super excited to listen and not say anything else because he doesn't really want to. <laughs> Unless you want to interject, man, let us know, all right? All right. All right, excellent. And for our closing segment, it's a doozy. As all of us know, the 50s and 60s were instrumental to American life. We were obviously alive during that time. Totally. We watched the Civil Rights Movement, the beginning of rock and roll, the Peace Corps. All these ideas and many others brought new and exciting ways of life. But Mr. Massive, Bowie, this is a sports show. So let's talk sports. 1957 began the Western expansion of the MLB in its quest to conquer the country. As two pioneers of the sport, the Giants and the Dodgers, moved to California. But folks, that left New York with a hole in its heart. Even the Yankees, the global power that they were, couldn't compensate with their, at the time, 17 championships. Do understand that with every loss comes a new opportunity. And with the rapid growth of American football and the dawn of the Super Bowl era approaching, the MLB turned to rapid expansion for the first time as a crutch to entice new viewership and fandom. The MLB paraded around the country in its quest for expansion, forming eight new teams in the 60s. Arguably the most important to baseball are the New York Mets. I never thought I'd ever hear you say that out loud. Absolutely. Hey, I like the Mets. I enjoy going to the games. I, I have fun with the Mets. So let's have fun today with the Mets. Oh, God. The Kings of Queens were formed in 1962 in the mold of the history of New York City. And as rocky as their history has been, entertaining would be the word to describe such. The best of blue and orange have made such an impact on the city and no Yankees championships could arguably match their 69 and 86 championships. Something as near and dear to some Mets fans as their spouses. From lovable losers to the Amazons to you gotta believe to arguably the greatest team ever in 1986 to the Subway Series team in 2000, the Mets seem to often have an enjoyable story. No matter what they do or how they play, they're always cast as underdogs in their own city. And that always intensifies the roller coaster that is Mets fandom. Even their 2015 World Series run was magical. In 2012, they managed to make a knuckleballer produce a Cy Young Award in an era dominated by those who throw 100 miles per hour. From Tom Seaver to Doc Gooden, to David Wright, to Matt Harvey, to Jacob deGrom, the Mets flat out have a different kind of aura to them. It's so unique. And even as a Yankee fan, 
I have to admit, there's no better fan experience than a Mets game at Citi Field. However, this is not a Mets porn segment, nor is it a stupid teams do stupid things segment. This is solely based on the fact that the Mets cannot get out of their own shadow. Their tail is always between their legs and their thumb up their ass. They've only made the playoffs in consecutive years just once in their history. And it's due to the often yet saddening truth that the Big Apple in center field is a ticking time bomb. They always pull the pin while the grenade is in their hand and it always manages to blow up in their face. See 2007 and last season as recent examples. As much of a better team currently and historically as the Yankees are, baseball is better when the Mets are better. And thus today's segment focuses on how to make them a World Series champion. Ultimately, we all know the drill here. It starts with ownership. Fred and Jeff Wolpon continue to be the most broke, rich people in sports, and they've now failed to sell the team multiple times. Billionaires are broke. <laughs> I don't even think they're... They're not even billionaires. That's the worst part. They own City Field, as we mentioned. We alluded to it before. They, they own 65% of SNY, and yet their Fred Wolpon's net worth is only $500 million. Only $500 Only $500 million. <laughs> Only $500 million. Can't stress that enough. <laughs> they want to sell the team to a higher bidder, but they also want to maintain creative control. So how do you sell something but still run it? No one's figured that out yet, and neither will the Wolpons. But in our dream scenario, the Wolpons get down on their knees and sell the Mets to Steve Cohen for, you know, $3 billion rather than the 2.6 they were initially offered. Only $3 billion. Only $3 billion. You know, make them a lot richer than where they are now. Jeff Wilpon, tone-deaf, blind, and stupid, along with his daddy, see all control to Cohen, but to continue to own their stake in SNY. Everyone's happy! Yay! <laughs> Mr. Madison's favorite word in the English language. Yay! Compromise! <laughs> Leaving both parties disgruntled. <laughs> Rather than dividing into what seems to be the bigger issue at hand... We got it out of the way quickly. Let Cohen be the guy that he claims to be, and let him use his financial might to bring the Mets back to prominence. But we all know that's not going to happen. He is worth nearly 30 times the net worth that principal owner Fred Wilpon is. But anyways, let's get on with our dream scenario. We're going to build a Major League World Series champion out of the New York Mets. The common misconception in baseball is that starting pitching wins championships. I mean, it does, but, but... It's actually not true. I get that the Nationals did win with Scherzer, Strasburg, and Patrick Cortman, but their real strength was timely hitting, the Soto Shuffle, <laughs> and momentum. Most importantly, momentum. To use as a concrete example of what wins championships, let's look at not only the Giants, but most importantly, the team that defeated the Mets in 2015... The Royals, led by a lineup that made consistent contact and a strong defensive lineup, as well as a suffocating bullpen. The Royals sort of set the standard on how to model a championship team without any superstars. You all know the Mets have relied too heavily on their starting pitching 
And while it's been fruitful, I get that. It's been great. They've had three Cy Youngs in the past decade. The fruit hangs too much in the middle of the strike zone. I agree. So let me ask you this then. When a team has so much starting pitching, wouldn't you think that maybe you could you know, take some of that surplus and maybe get a part that'll help your team in the, you know, the run scoring department? Absolutely. You would think. You would think. And you would think that with a guy like Jacob deGrom, a guy like Noah Syndergaard, guys like Zach Wheeler, you'd produce more wins. But here's the thing. Jacob deGrom has two Cy Youngs in the past two years and produced only 22 wins in that span. What plagued the Mets last year were inconsistent spurts of offense as well as bonehead moments in the field and from their bullpen. I mean, look at last night, right? Last night, we watched the Mets last year give up 10 runs in the first inning to Philadelphia in one game, and they had four errors in the first inning, dooming them to a crucial game. If you watch back in, like, July, August, those type of games doomed them moving forward. Well, yeah, because you could prevent as many runs as you want, but when you don't always do that and you can't score runs, where's that going to go? You can't win every game 3-1 or 2-1. You're going to have bad games. Exactly. The Mets were not in the top 10 of the MLB in ERA, OPS, runs, or fielding percentage. That's a great way to miss the playoffs. It's going to take an (laughs) all-around effort from Steve Cohen and Brony Van Wagnen to put little brother on top. So the first thing that we address is the big rumor that came out of the offseason for the Mets. And that was addressing their bullpen with a big splash. Didn't they go get Dylan Batantis? Yeah, that's not a big splash. Consider, considering he <laughs> pitched a third of an inning in 2019. Here's what we do, Mr. Massive. Bowie. That's his vibe. The Mets bullpen had a higher ERA in 2019 than that of the Tigers. Marlins, and the Mariners. Not the Red Sox? Yes, and the Red Sox as well. So, how do we solve that? We're trading for Josh Hader. The Brewers need to capitalize off Hader's recent success, and in doing so, we give the Mets an absolute dominant lefty with multi-inning flexibility. He's going to slot in as either the closer, relieving Edwin Diaz of that responsibility, or as the best setup man in baseball. Who do we trade, you ask? Bye-bye, Ahmed Rosario. Yes, one for one. Your starting shortstop goes to a more attractable position in center field for the Brewers where he can utilize his range, elite speed, and his arm. Now, yes, that leaves a hole at shortstop. We mentioned defense is a big issue that plagued the Mets last year. So let's address that. Oh, 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 can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? Why, yes, young grasshopper. Go for it. So, in an ever-changing baseball environment, analytics and advanced defensive metrics are becoming more powerful than ever. And here comes our solution, Mr. Andrelton Simmons. Willie Mays once said that a run saved is a run earned. If I save myself from scoring run run, now they have to score two. So, with that in mind... That's what's at the forefront of baseball right now. Defense and saving runs. Insert Andrelton Simmons. Shortstop for the Anaheim Angels. The absolute best defensive shortstop in the game right now. Reminiscent of a certain Ozzie Smith. Not much of a bat, 
but the glove is elite. On a per-season basis, Andrelton Simmons averages out the highest defensive war in history on a consistent basis. So what's his contract? I'm going to estimate at about five years and $80 million. I think for a 30-year-old shortstop who's going to provide premier defensive value, it's perfect. It's what the Mets need. One more touch to strengthen the bullpen. The now-wealthy Mets go all in on Kirby Yates. Coming off one of the greatest seasons for a relief pitcher in MLB history, he takes a two-year, $40 million deal to be an integral part of the bullpen. And now the best bullpen in New York City. Let's put it this way. We just mentioned that Josh Hader could push out Edwin Diaz as the closer of the Mets. Kirby Yates will do that. <laughs> All right, so now you've got Kirby Yates and Josh Hader manning that bullpen. Now, the Amazons lost Zach Wheeler, and they're set to lose Marcus Stroman in free agency. But truthfully, Stroman's a fucking bum. He's undersized, he lacks strikeout ability, and when he does get hit, it's scary. Bye-bye, Stroman. Have fun being an angel. Oh, man. <laughs> We're going to gut the rotation even further, though. Noah Syndergaard is one of the top five to ten most talented pitchers in baseball. But yet, due to a myriad of nonsense issues, like hand, foot, and mouth disease, as well as back, shoulder, and elbow issues, thank you, Tommy John, he's never reached his full potential. Sometimes it takes a change of scenery to unlock a player's full potential. Look at Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. And speaking of those two, who thrived in Houston, Thor is going to Houston. Oof. With Verlander and Granke reaching the tail ends of their career, Syndergaard has a chance to learn how to harness his amazing stuff, stay healthy, and become the future ace for Houston on a reasonable contract moving into his later 20s and early 30s. It doesn't matter that Syndergaard's recovering from Tommy John because it makes it easier for him to re-sign with a team. But douche, what did the Mets get? Well, Mr. Massive, three Astros traded an ugly blue and orange for a much sleeker blue and orange. <laughs> Fuck you, Houston. Kyle Tucker, post-hype prospect and five-tool stud, now man's right field for the Mets. Abraham Toro, versatile infielder with a balanced approach and potential to be an above-average regular, man's third base. And Jose Urquidy, essentially an already better version of Marcus Stroman with actual strikeout potential, is now in the midst of the rotation. Sorry, kiddies, but Brandon Nimmo does not cut it as a starter. They need explosion, and that's what Tucker provides, moving Jeff McNeil to an actual full-time defensive position in center field. So next, we need to replace Syndergaard and his explosive fastball slider combo. How do we do that? Let's sign Robbie Ray. He gets a four-year, $80 million deal. Now, he doesn't deserve a five-year deal, but yet he has the upside to be an absolutely fantastic number two. And as we just mentioned, a change of scenery might be all a guy needs. Unconventional due to his high walk rate, if any team can harness race potential, it's the Mets. Remember, it's not high-end starting pitching that's hampered them, so it's not like they need an absolutely superb lockdown rotation. 
So now you've got on the bench Brandon Nimmo, J.D. Davis, Yoana Cespedes, Dominic Smith, Jed Lowry, Tomas Nito, Matt Adams, and Luis Guillorme. It's a lot of people to deal with. Who's getting offed? Dominic Smith's an easy trade target. <laughs> he has shown the defensive capability of, a, of that little leaguer who stands in left field picking his nose and kicking rocks. He gets shipped to the Tigers. He plays DH for a non-contender in exchange for Spencer Turnbull. Yes, I get it. Turnbull was 3-17 last year, but he played in front of, in front of a bunch <laughs> of high school players last year. All right? If there's any indication that win-loss record is irrelevant, look at your boy Jacob deGrom. Turnbull's erratic, but under the tutelage of a terrible organization, make him a Met and his upside can be actualized. He strikes out a batter in an inning, and he could seriously be an impact mid-rotation guy with a very controllable future. But here's the thing, Greg. Shoot. These are great, smart moves, but what's the big, sexy move that the Mets fans really want that's going to lead them into the future? Because players are great, but who's going to be leading these guys? It's a great question. Now, we're going to size up a really big move here. It might be a bit unrealistic, but the let's get into the backstory first. The hiring of Luis Perez was more of a reactive move than a proactive move. At the end of the day, he wasn't the guy the Mets wanted. Carlos Beltran's idiocy left a hole at the managerial position. The team the Mets built is way too enticing, and thus Bruce Bochy excitedly ends his brief retirement to lead the Mets in 2021. So, to be conclusive, the Mets spend $200 million, make two massively impactful trades, sell the team, and hire a retired manager. So a complete overhaul. Yes. And all of this sounds crazy. But we've already seen crazier in sports. I promise you that. Yeah, we've seen a team sold out of pure racism 10 years ago. Absolutely. And with a potentially resource-rich Mets, they can flourish as a perennial contender and restack their farm. So, their lineup is as followed. Jeff McNeil, Kyle Tucker, Pete Alonzo, Michael Conforto, Robinson Cano, Wilson Ramos, Abraham Toro, and Andrelton Simmons... With J.D. Davis and Yoannis on the bench. Their rotation is led by DeGrom, Robbie Ray, Steven Matz, Jose Urquidy, and Spencer Turnbull. And their bullpen is led by Josh Hader, Kirby Yates, Seth Lugo, Edwin Diaz, Jerry's Familia, and your boy, Dylan Betances. God, the bullpen like that must give every Mets fan a hard-on. Definitely. And managed by three-time World Series champion Bruce Bochy, the Mets turn out a 97-win season, an NL East title, and a matchup against the Cardinals in the NLDS, sweeping them in the process. They then take on your perennial participation trophy award-winning L.A. Dodgers. Mets in seven. And then, 
We finally get our Subway Series revenge, Mets fans. They take on the 104-win Yankees in a seven-game classic, climaxing, in an extra-inning Game 7 with Pete Alonso hitting the game-winning home run and Jacob deGrom coming in for the final three innings of relief. The Mets storm into the uglier borough and choke the pinstripes off the Yankees for their third World Series victory and their absolute best one yet. Bust out the blue and orange, people! Thank you, everyone, for listening to Episode 4 of Eat My Sports. Normally, this would be the part where I have a little outro, but we have some breaking news. The MLBPA has rejected the most recent proposal from the MLB and has claimed that no formal counteroffer will be made. This basically means that the players do not want to negotiate further under the current demands of the owners. This already tense situation is only getting worse, and it's not resolving anything. So I will leave you with this. When undergoing a negotiation or discussion, please be willing to understand and listen to the other party. Otherwise, you'll both just be wasting each other's time. Thank you very much. Always stay hungry. We'll see you next week.